open your Bibles to Psalm 22. Hold that for a few moments. We're going to spend a majority of our time in that particular text. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark, and we're glad you're with us. Uh, we've been studying the past few weeks, uh, the last week of Jesus' ministry, and this greater series we're calling The Message, where we're studying the teachings of Jesus, and we'll be wrapping that up today with words, words that Jesus said in one of the most horrific moments of his life. Last week, we talked about the suffering that Jesus went through from that Thursday night until they nailed him to the cross. Those words focused on, or excuse me, those thoughts focused on the physical and emotional suffering he went through, the physical beating he took, and the emotional suffering of having his friends abandon him, having lies told about him, and having the unjust trial uh, that cost him his freedom and ultimately his life. Today, I want to look at a different kind of suffering, not the emotional, physical kind, but a kind that uh, doctors can't measure, but it just brings as much pain as any of the others. Isaiah had predicted close to 700 years before Jesus' punishment uh, at that place called Calvary. Isaiah wrote these words. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Which is amazing because today's message is about the words that Jesus said at the cross. And yet Isaiah says he did not open his mouth, which is true. Did he speak these words and Isaiah was wrong? Or have we misunderstood and were they attributed to him and he didn't say them? Well, let me give you the distinction. We are going to look at the seven sayings of Jesus. But what Isaiah is addressing is that Jesus never pleaded for his life. He never begged for mercy. He never offered words of regret. If Jesus had answered truthfully the questions asked of him by Annas or Caiaphas or Herod or Pilate, if he had answered the questions they asked of him, he would have been set free. Isaiah says that Jesus chose not to speak to his own defense. And the seven sayings on the cross were spoken for our defense. They're both right. Jesus did not speak a word when he could have freed himself, and yet he spoke a word to teach us who he is. I find myself today asking, both first and second hour and now third, I find myself asking this question out loud, doesn't that sound like our Jesus? I'll be curious your reaction this morning as we listen to what he said, and if that doesn't sound like the one you love. Uh, the crucifixion, it's Friday morning. We've been with Jesus in the upper room. We've seen him administer the Lord's Supper for the very first time as a reminder of what was to take place. We hear his high priestly prayer, his encouragement to the disciples, and then the betrayal in the garden, the prayers of passion in the garden, the unjust trial, the beating, the torture, physical pain he endured for us. It's now 9 a.m. Friday morning and that wonderful and yet horrible week. Mark says it was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour would have been 9 a.m. Uh, they brought all to be crucified. Jesus had been awake for some estimate between 25 and 30 hours that particular day. He had been through all the celebrations, all the tragedy, all the tears. He's fatigued, he's assaulted, he's injured and scourged, and then he's nailed. Spikes driven through his wrist just below uh, the bones of his hand, both wrists nailed to a crossbar. That crossbar would be put on a post, that post would be dropped in the ground, his feet would be nailed, both of them together, right above the joint where the foot bends. 
He would have been tied down with ropes to hold him in place so that his suffering would go on. Please remember what we discussed last week. Crucifixion was not a means to kill you. Crucifixion was a means to make you suffer as long as they could before you died. Some people would last up to six to nine days on the cross, suffering the most uh, horrible torment. It's 9 a.m. that morning. John says, carrying his cross, he went to a place of the skull called Golgotha. And here they crucified him and him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. This fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy, where the Old Testament links itself to the New Testament. In fact, we can't understand the New Testament unless we understand the Old. Isaiah would write, he was counted among the transgressors. This anointed one would be labeled a sinner, would be labeled a criminal. And he was counted among the criminals, but let there be no mistake here today. He was not a criminal, he was innocent. We're the criminals, we should be on the cross. He should have been set free. But Isaiah said, no, he was counted as one of us. Then Jesus began to speak, his body being put on that post and dropped in the ground, the jarring effect on his lungs. Many people, because their wrists were held by ropes and held by stakes or spikes, that many would experience the dislocation of both of their shoulders under the weight of their body. And this is where position Jesus was in when he offers the first words from the cross. We're gonna call them words of mercy. Words of mercy. In the midst of that moment, when all the anger and hatred being spewed out at him, all the unjust things said, all of the lies, all of the incriminating evidence that was not incriminating because it wasn't even evidence. In the midst of this, Luke records Jesus as saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I'd like to spend this morning contesting the fact that they did know what they were doing. But what Jesus is speaking on is a completely different plane. The Jews don't understand by it in their attempts of getting rid of Jesus, they're actually making him more powerful. That he would defeat death by death not death by life. And so he says, Father, forgive them because Jesus knows that what he's doing in that moment is offsetting everything they're doing to themselves. So let me ask you this morning, doesn't that sound like our Jesus? Words of mercy, words of compassion. So he says, Father, forgive them. Isaiah 53, Isaiah records, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. Jesus was praying on the cross. Oh, I have no doubt I'd have been praying, but I'd have been praying that it ended. I'd have been praying that my pain went away. I'd have been praying that they all get theirs. And Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. While he's agonizing and suffering, the soldiers take his personal items and begin to, to take them for themselves as if they had legal right. And they find one of his undergarments, the, the thing he would have wore under his outer robes, uh, was woven together and was a beautiful piece. Probably the nicest thing Jesus possessed in his lifetime. And instead of tearing it up to sell, they decided to cast lots to see who got to keep it. This too was prophesied. And while this innocent man is suffering on the cross and paying a physical price no one else will ever pay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record three different groups of people mocking him. Matthew says in chapter 27, and the people passing by shouted abuse. I have to ask you, at nine o'clock on a Friday morning, what kind of person goes to an execution and enjoys it? What kind of person makes fun of a dying man, an innocent dying man? And they shouted, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. If you are who you told us you were, then do what you say you can do. Mark records that the leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. They think they've just proven their point. 
and in fact, they're approving his. Luke records that the soldiers mocked him. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The crowd, the religious leaders, the soldiers, all making fun of him, pointing out his weakness, mocking him. Chances are Jesus was naked, hanging on the cross. The ridicule and shame he was going through. It comes right out of Psalm twenty-two, seventeen. They look and they gloat over me. Jesus knew reading the Psalms and the prophecies as a kid, what would take place that day, and he was experiencing it. But he spoke words of mercy. The second thing he said were words of grace. Words of grace. This is one of those contradicting, or contradicting things that are, have much irony in them. It, it's so amazing to read what took place. Luke records it in Luke 23. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Making fun of him. And the other criminal, which is funny, the other criminal rebukes him. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? Now Mark records that both of the criminals were mocking him. And Luke records that one of them came to his senses. Both of them began to make fun of Jesus and joining in the crowd, finding some perverse satisfaction out of ridiculing a dying man. And then one of the criminals comes to realize that this man, he heard him say, Father, forgive them. He realizes this is an innocent man. Verse 41, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. How could Jesus do that? Not only offering words of mercy to his executioners, but offering grace to someone who's a guilty man. Doesn't that sound like our Jesus? You see, the word paradise that Jesus uses here is a word that the Greeks took from the Persians, and it means a place of beauty and delight, often a park or a garden. I just think if you understand your Old Testament, it all began in a garden. Revelation says it will all end in a garden when God restores the Garden of Eden in perfect paradise. Jesus gave his life to us in a garden. You can see the imagery. He says to this man, today you'll be with me in God's garden once again. Jesus is graceful. Jesus is good. The third thing Jesus says are what I'll call words of caring. This passage John records... Of course, John would record it because he's the one being spoken to in it. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, woman, he is your son. And he said to this disciple, she is your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. I, I don't know how to, how to understand this. I mean, I, I can see it. Intellectually, I understand what's being said here. But emotionally, I don't know how you put this all together. It was at this moment that Jesus, in the worst pain a human can experience by professional uh, executioners, looks down and sees his mother's pain, and he meets his mother's pain. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Oh, if you get tired of me asking that, you're in the wrong place, because today's all about Jesus. And he looks down, and he sees his mom, and he says to John, John, take care of her. And he says to Mary, take care of John. And they do. He had compassion. He had love. He had caring for his mother, for John, and for all of those grieving. And Mark tells us in chapter 15, the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land. Jesus had been on the cross for three hours now. His body's broken, dehydrated, possibly hallucinating. Some imagine he would be at this point. The sixth hour comes and darkness comes over the entire land. Now this wasn't just an eclipse. 
no matter what the skeptics want to teach you. Eclipses don't last for three hours. It became dark in this whole area. You wonder why it's dark. Well, let me, let me show you what the Bible teaches. If I would ask you what's the most common description of hell, most of us, based on, not Bible, but based on popular theology that's being proposed is that hell is fire. But if I can count, the most common description of hell in the Bible is darkness. So when the darkness poured out for that three-hour period of time, something very powerful and influential was happening. And it's in that moment when the darkness hits, the third hour of the persecution of Jesus, he offers us words of suffering. This is only once or one of two times that's recorded that Jesus suffered in a way that caused him to react publicly. Matthew 27, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The original language says clearly, Jesus didn't mutter this. He didn't speak it out. If you watch uh, some versions of Hollywood of Jesus, he's very calm and controlled and he utters these words very poetically. It's not what is recorded here by Matthew. Matthew says that he screamed, he shouted, he proclaimed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever had a bad moment? If you're over four, I think you have. Where you've said something to somebody in a feat of emotion, a moment of passion that you cannot erase and wish you could. Are you with me? Where you've had to look at somebody and say, I, that's not me. I, I didn't mean that. I don't want that to be me. I am so sorry. A lot of people think that Jesus had that moment here. Jesus lost it. And he cried out to God going, I've been drinking this cup you gave me and this is how you treat me? As if Jesus was furious, as if God abandoned Jesus and left him. And Jesus is saying, I can't take it anymore. That's not true. You see, you and I have lapses because we are selfish. And when someone hurts us, we hurt them back. Jesus didn't have a lapse here. And let me explain why. If you found out that I was dying in the hospital and you graced me by coming to see me before I passed away and I beckoned you to my bedside and I said these words to you, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You would know what I just did there, right? You wouldn't think that I was proclaiming to you I'm a sinner. You would be realizing I'm singing a song of praise to my God. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, all of the wrath, the darkness, all of the wrath of God, all of our sins, all of our selfishness and rebellion, all of the creepy things we've all done that we hope no one ever finds out about, all of that was flushed onto Jesus in that moment and the earth became dark and that whole region went into darkness and Jesus experienced that the presence of God was separated by the sin of all mankind and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was quoting the 22nd Psalm. It would have been a hymn that they sang, a song that they knew, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Look at it with me, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They herald insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him. Verse 14. 
I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garments. Can you see that Psalm 22 was the prophecy of an execution? And the steps of the execution have been eyewitness to that they all occurred to Jesus. So on the cross, when the darkness of all sin encompassed him, when God gave him over as the perfect lamb and the hands of the priest were laid on the lamb's head and his neck was cut and it was all passed over. In that moment, Jesus cried out the psalm of the great execution of an innocent man He connected King David's vision to his humanity. And if that's all we read, we'd have to ask the question, why would anybody sing that song? But the beautiful part, church, is it's the latter half of Psalms that we're most concerned about, beginning in verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering or the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. What Jesus was doing in those words of suffering was calling out the executioner's psalm, but stating that the one executed would be the one who delivers us. By his death, we live. By his stripes, we are healed. By his hope, we find life. Did you notice what the back half of the psalm says? The executioners think they're killing a man, but all they're doing is raising a nation. And the church, the church is the testimony to this psalm. Jesus wasn't having a moment where he cried out to God saying, how dare you? Jesus had a moment where he cried out to God and said, let's do this. Did you notice that when Jesus was physically beaten, he didn't cry out? When he was emotionally abandoned, he didn't cry out? His greatest suffering wasn't physical or emotional. His greatest suffering was his loss of the presence of his father. That's what hell will be. Someone once, once said, uh, what is the greatest punishment for those who say they don't want to be around God? And the answer is success. Because God will let you go to a place where there is no goodness, there is no hope, there is no love and no joy, and you will have exactly what you've asked for, emptiness, loneliness, and the cry of suffering. And Jesus cried those words in the church. We hear the words of mercy, of grace, of caring and of suffering. The fifth thing he said were the words of death. Jesus knew that everything was now finished. And to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, or vinegar. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. The humanity of Jesus is exposed here. He wasn't a robot. He was hurting, he was struggling, he was dying. His tongue was thickening, he was dehydrating, and he said, I'm thirsty. 
And as a kid, I always thought that they were being merciful here, that somebody was compassionate, and somebody said, give him something to drink, and so they gave him vinegar, until I did some research, and it infuriated me. I'm not exaggerating. I, I was angry for a day or two in my study, just so bitter about this. See, what I didn't understand was, some scholars will suggest that whenever there was a sponge on a stick, it was used by people that worked in the latrines. And rich people would come in, instead of touching themselves to wipe themselves when they were done using the restroom, they would pay a servant who would dip this stick with a sponge into vinegar, and they would wipe the person from behind, and they would be paid to service people that way. And it's very possible that the stick that they used to give Jesus a drink was a toilet brush full of vinegar. That's not right. In fact, that's deadly wrong. The lack of civility the lack of mercy and compassion. They put it to his lips. Psalm 69 says, they will give me gall for my food and in my thirst they will give me vinegar to drink. They did that to our God. They put that in his face. Death was so close. And the sixth words that Jesus said were words of faithfulness. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. It is done. The vow of Psalm 22, that I fulfilled the vow, that everything that God had asked Jesus to do, Jesus said, it is done. I have finished it. Now, here's one thing I know, and I'm not trying to be comical, but it is a little bit of musing in my heart, that they should be very grateful it was Jesus on the cross and not me, because if I had Jesus' power, I would have said it is finished, but not for me, for every one of them. I would have called down the wrath of God. There would have been a firestorm that history would still be talking about. That place would still smoke. To treat God that way, And Jesus had all that power. And instead of saying, I'm finished with this and I'm done with all of you, he said, God, it is finished. And the restoration of his return. Do you remember back in John 17, two weeks ago, when Jesus prayed? Do you remember what he prayed for himself? He said, Father, when I've done what you've asked me to do, can I be restored back to the place of glory I was before I came here? Do you remember what he said? Jesus said to God, can I come home? And God said, son, you can come home. And Jesus said, God, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I have now taken on the sins of the world as the spotless lamb. And you have given me this power. It is finished. That psalm we just read together, do you remember the last verse? They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall yet be born, that he has what, church? Finished it. Jesus said, I've done everything you asked me to do. Check, please. I'm out of here. And then the words of hope. The last thing Jesus says. It's found in Luke 23. Jesus called out with a loud voice. Second time he screams. Both times he's talking to his father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. You know what's weird about preaching about the cross the last two weeks is we don't go home and eat jelly beans and ham afterwards. Seems like the church only wants to talk about these moments when it's Good Friday or Easter Sunday. It's nice in the middle of the fall to be reminded what he did, he does every day. And when he cried out, into your hands I commit my spirit, this may sound like a bumper sticker, but I believe it's true. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He gave it every point of the way. 
He could have, he could have answered Pilate and been set free. He could have called down angels and freed him. He could have destroyed all of his prosecutors, all of his executioners. He could have done every bit of that. He chose not to. And he even gave his life away. He did not die from the physical torment. Nobody died in six hours. Nobody died from crucifixion in six hours. They lasted days. They kept him alive to punish him even more so that everybody who saw someone dying on the cross would say, don't do what he did. And when he had fulfilled everything he was asked to do, he said, I'm done and died. It was 3 p.m., six hours on that cross. Matthew records, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Do you remember on Sunday of the Passion Week on the triumphal entry, when Jesus rode in on the donkey, do you remember what he said to his disciples? He said, if you will not praise me, the rocks will cry out. And upon his death, those words were held true. The rocks began to shake and the world convulsed at what we did to its creator. You see, Jesus said seven things, but the truth is there's an eighth thing said at the cross. And we can't say what Jesus said. Only our God could do that for us. But the response of the eighth saying, the words of life, every one of us has to say or reject saying it. Matthew records it, Mark records it, Luke records it. All of them said there was a Roman centurion who was standing there at the cross who saw this, a professional executioner, a man who lived to be trained to be as cruel and ruthless as he needed to be, seeing and hearing and watching and hearing all that Jesus said and how he acted and saw how he gave his life away rather than had it taken from him. Seeing that nobody dies in six hours. This guy willed himself gone. In that moment, he cried out, surely he was the son of God. And of all the things said at the cross, the only one you and I have to say is that one. Is he or is he not who he said he was? And you say, I need more evidence. You do not. The holy word is all you need. The eyewitness accounts and the evidence you want miracles and you want feelings and you want reactions, I'm here to tell you that when Jesus was suffering the most, what did he rely on the most? He had been quoting scripture from the time of his suffering to his death. Notice that every time he was tempted, every time he was betrayed, and every time Jesus suffered, did he rely on his feelings or his friends? No, he quoted scripture. Every time. He based his life on the promises of God. He based his life on the truth of the word. If you're not in the words, you don't know the Father. If you're not in the words, you don't know the Son. This Roman who had no experience with Jesus, this Roman soldier who never saw a miracle, who didn't know about a virgin birth, and who probably didn't know the antiquities and the and prophecies, that man saw Jesus, had enough evidence in the way he lived his life that he looked at him and he said, he was the Son of God. And yet we want more. And I ask you, what more do you need? Paul told us, we talked about this last week, Paul told us the most important thing you'll know in your lifetime. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, and I want you to notice this, according to what? To the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to what? Paul understood where faith comes from. The same way Jesus knew where faith comes from. From the words of God. From the promises and truth of God. So if you allow me this morning, and I don't know how you can stop me because I have a microphone. Here we go. Money won't save you. Get all you can. 
you're still going to die. Sex won't save you. Drugs, alcohol, and the feelings they give you for a moment, they will not save you. In fact, they'll kill you. Family won't save you. Accomplishments won't save you. Fame won't save you. Sports won't save you. Children won't save you. Work won't save you. Power won't save you. Only Jesus Christ who died on that cross will save you. Rest of it is foolish and temporary at best. And Jesus is eternal. That man who let himself be killed did it for every single one of us. Those who now believe, those who may believe, and those who refuse to believe. That Roman saw that man and had enough evidence in the way he died to proclaim him the son of the living God. Paul said, if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through Jesus' life? See, the world says there's a bunch of ways. Just be good moral people. Just stop sinning as much. Try to be better than you were yesterday. That won't save you. Or God owes Jesus an immense apology. Because Jesus knew that when he said it is finished, his death became our life. His sacrifice replaced my need to. His hope became my joy. There was no other way to get that. There's no other way but through Jesus. You see, I want you to know Jesus doesn't ask us to just believe in him. If I'm allowed to, I get so tired of people saying, I believe in Jesus, so does Satan. He knows more about him than you do. Satan believes Jesus is real too. It doesn't change a lick of his life. Jesus doesn't want us to believe in him. Jesus wants us to die to him. Listen to his words. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. And if you think your cross is gonna look different than his cross, you've been lied to. You're gonna die the same way he died. You're gonna be abandoned, you're gonna be alone, and the only hope you have of surviving any of it will be through the power of God's word and the promises God's given. It'll call, you have to have a dependence on the truth of God over and above no matter what other men say. You're gonna have to deny yourself every day. We're not good at denying ourselves. We deny denial. That's all we're good at. I wanna be happy. I don't think God's nearly as concerned about your happiness as he's your holiness. That's why Psalm 22, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, church, it is what? Jesus is the only way you're saved. He's the only hope of salvation. He did it all. I do nothing but accept what he did. And it doesn't simply mean I agree with him. It means I die to self so I can live for Jesus. See, this 84 weeks studying the teachings of Jesus are not so we're more informed. It's so we have a clear understanding what he wants from us. And I wanna tell you that I'm asked this question every now and then. It's a question I had to search for myself growing up in the church. How do I accept the cross? Jesus isn't asking me to walk around town with the cross. He's not asking me to have someone nail me to a cross. So how do, I, how do I take the cross? How do I take the sacrifice and the blood on that cross and let it cleanse me? At what moment do I do this? And I'm here to tell you, in my years of study, and I continue to study, the only place in all of scripture that I find that the blood of the cross is applied to me is found in Romans chapter six. When Paul says, 
that in my baptism, I take on the crucifixion and I arise to the resurrection. It's the only place in all of scripture where the blood of Christ is clearly applied to us is when we're washed clean of our sins in the waters of baptism and raised to new life in Jesus. And listen to how Jesus said, this isn't, this isn't one of those things where if you come and say, well, I come from this church background and I come from this, this church is full of, it's just a melting pot of religious backgrounds. That's why we wanna spend our time in what Jesus says, not what men say. And no disrespect to your religious background. Our obligation is to read the word of God and answer yes, amen? Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28 when he was ascending to the Father. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. How do you make disciples? You teach them all things that he's commanded and you introduce them into the kingdom. They enter into the kingdom through the waters of baptism. You see, we're not saved by a ceremony. You can go in a bathtub every day of your life and not be saved. When you go into the waters to receive the death of Jesus and the crucifixion, then you'll find the salvation you're looking for. It's not the ceremony, it's the surrender. Baptism is not a work that we do. Baptism is a work that Jesus did. It's a work of God. You see, Paul said in uh, Galatians 3, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You've put him on. Peter, on the day the church began, said, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every now and then the question will be raised. Are, are there unbaptized uh, people in the kingdom of heaven? There are a lot of unbaptized believers. But when I read my Bible in the book of Acts, there's nobody who entered the kingdom of heaven who did not obey Jesus Christ in baptism. It's not baptism that saves you, it's Jesus Christ. Church, are we getting that? And for some of us, we've wondered, why do I have to? And I'll always answer this way. You don't have to be baptized. You get to be baptized. You get to be cleansed by the blood of a man who's earned whatever he asks us to do. Would you agree? If Jesus came down and told you to do the worst thing you ever could imagine, I ask you the question, is he worth it? But he's only asked us to allow ourselves to be washed clean, to be freed from that. In Acts 22, one of the pleas of the church was, arise. And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. This isn't a commercial for tonight. God's moving in this place today. And tonight at five o'clock, we're gonna do what we call a big splash, which is a call for people to come and to be washed clean of their sins. If you've never made this decision for yourself, if you've never stated, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God and I want what he did on the cross, I want his blood to cover my sins. It's the only way you find the father. And if you do that, the promises of the filling of the Holy Spirit and life in Christ are yours. That's why Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is available now. Tonight at five o'clock, whether you are a believer and a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, or you wanna come tonight and say, I need to obey, then we invite you to come back. And even if you just come, we're gonna sing praises to God. And for about an hour tonight, we're just gonna use the gift of music and celebration to worship. What a better way to spend a Sunday afternoon together. But the beautiful part is first hour, we saw a woman go into the baptistry and give her life to Jesus Christ and let him apply his blood to her future. And then last hour, we saw three uh, children go into that water and we watched their parents immerse them for the forgiveness of their sins. And if I'll ever stop talking, you're gonna witness two more right through that window. 